This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, fellow truth seekers, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 131, entitled The Early Christian View of God in Romans. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is your weekly podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I want to begin this episode with some exciting news that I have wanted to share for some time. I will be having a debate but it's going to be more of a spirited dialogue on Jesus' preexistence. The date of this debate slash dialogue is August 16th, so coming up pretty soon. For those interested in being a part of the live audience for this debate on Jesus' preexistence, you can look for the link to the Zoom that we're going to be debating on. And this link is going to be on the Biblical Unitarian Podcast Facebook page. The debate is going to be recorded, so if you can't be there live, that's okay. It's going to be recorded. There will be video and audio, and I'm going to have a few podcast episodes on the contents of the debate afterwards. So please look forward to that. This week's episode, we'll look at the massive and theologically dense letter to the Romans. Many assume, rightly in my opinion, that Romans is the magnum opus of Paul's theological reflection. While it would be an overstatement to say that Romans is a systematic theology of Paul's thought, because it doesn't speak about the Lord's Supper or detailed spiritual gifts or apocalyptic themes surrounding the Second Coming, Romans nevertheless is a giant and a treasure trove for those interested in what Paul believed and taught to his converts. As we have been exploring in our latest episodes, we are looking to see if Paul continues to express Jewish unitary monotheism, or if Paul believes that the identity of God has been expanded to include the Son and the Holy Spirit. We also want to look at Paul's Christology to see in what sense Jesus has been exalted. Thirdly, we want to explore the relationship between God and the risen Jesus. The letter to the Romans cites a Yahweh passage from the Old Testament and uses it in regard to Jesus. Does this mean that Paul thought that Jesus was Yahweh himself? Some English translations say that Jesus is, quote, God overall, end quote, in Romans 9, verse 5. Is this the correct way to render Paul's Greek? Paul also states that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Is this a reference to the incarnation of of the Son of God? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the Christian portrayal of God in Romans. The Greek noun for God, theos, 
appears 153 times in Paul's letter to the Romans. And 153 times is the largest concentration of God language within Paul's letters. In fact, within all of the letters of the New Testament. So Paul has a lot to say about God. Does Paul say that God is more than one person? Well, what we see is that whenever Paul qualifies God within the letter to the Romans, God is qualified as the Father. Specifically, he is God our Father in Romans 1.7. And I think it's interesting that the emphasis is on our Father. We have to remember that Romans was written to Rome, which was the seat of imperial authority. And at the time of the writing of Romans, Nero was the emperor. For those that don't know, Nero was regarded as the father of the fatherland. And we could see this designation for the emperor Nero on coins, listed by historians, and in surviving inscriptions. So prior to becoming Christians, many of the Romans would have regarded Nero as their father. But Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, says that God is our father. God is specifically the father in chapter 6, verse 4. And spirit-filled believers will cry out to God and acknowledge him as Abba, Father, in chapter 8, verse 15. In regard to the relationship between God and Jesus, Paul says that this God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 15, verse 6. So Jesus has a God, and Jesus has a Father. And that God is the God and the Father. Now, there is an open question regarding whether Jesus is called God in Romans chapter 9, verse 5. This is an open question as far as I can see in regard to what commentators state. But we need to look at it because the English translations are even divided on this particular issue. I'll back up a little bit and read some of the verses in context. I'm going to start in Romans 9, verse 3, and read on to verse 5. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. That's Romans 9, verses 3 through 5. And it's that last phrase where it says, Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all. And then Paul gives a benediction. God bless forever. Amen. And so the question is, does Paul put a full stop there after who is over all, meaning Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, pause, benediction about God, someone distinguished from Jesus, God bless forever, amen, or is Paul saying Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, 
namely is Christ, God overall. The NIV translates it that way. And I think the best way to look at this, because the Greek is ambiguous, you can't just look at the Greek and say, well, it needs to be translated one way or another. The best way to look at it is to look at, in my opinion, other benedictions within Romans to see to whom Paul offers benedictions. You can actually look at the benedictions in all of Paul's letters, and I think this is a better way to go about it, but since we're looking specifically at Romans, we're going to limit our search to the benedictions in Romans. So the first benediction we see is in Romans 125, which says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 125. So there the benediction is given to God, who is the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So it seems that when Paul wants to offer a benediction, it's to God, who is blessed forever. Amen. Namely, the creator. And then in Romans 11, the last four verses, verses 33 through 36, Paul says, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, 33-36. So in this benediction, to him be the glory forever. Amen. That is given to God, the Lord, who is a single person, referred to with singular pronouns, him, his. So in the other benedictions within Romans, the benedictions are clearly given to God. God being someone that is distinguished from Jesus. So I think, among other reasons, that this is the best way to read Romans 9.5. Namely, that Paul is talking about Christ according to the flesh, who is overall, and then you could put a pause there or a semicolon, or you could even put a period, and then have Paul offer his benediction to someone distinguished from Jesus. Namely, God bless forever. Amen. That seems to be consistent with the benedictions throughout the letter to the Romans. But of course, you could look at the benedictions in 2 Corinthians. You can look at them in Galatians. And you can see that Paul is very consistent. Paul only gives benedictions to God the Father, never to Jesus. So, in regard to the subject of God in Romans, it seems unlikely that Romans 9.5 is calling Jesus God. Now, having mentioned Romans 1.25, this indicates that God is the creator. And in the Greek, it is a single person, ton ktisanta. And then it uses the relative pronoun os. So you have the one who creates, whom, the creator, who is blessed forever, in Romans 1.25. So there is one creator, one person who creates, and this is God. And this God is distinguished from the created creature. Now, one of the most important things in Romans in regard to Paul's understanding of God is that Paul regards the Shema to be the creed 
of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Look at what it said in Romans 3:29 through 30. This is how the NASB translates this passage. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Is one person. So God is one. And actually in the Greek, it doesn't separate God from the identification of being one person with all of this talk of the one who's going to justify the circumcised and the uncircumcised both by faith. It actually says, Iper is o theos os vkoc. For God is one who will justify. And so there, Paul continues to indicate that he believes in the creed of Israel, that God is one person, and this one personed God is the God of Gentiles. The monotheistic God of Judaism is now the God of believing Gentiles. Paul has not changed his understanding of God in regard to the God that he inherited from his Judaism. So enough about God. What can we see about Paul's Christology in Romans? That leads us to our second point, point number two, which is the Christian portrayal of Jesus in Romans. As we typically do, we do some word studies to see the sort of emphasis that Paul gives to Jesus. So the given human name, Jesus, is referred to in Romans 36 times. 36 times we see Jesus. Now in regard to the royal title, Christ, Christos, we have 66 times, which is a massive emphasis and frequency. Of these 66 times, we can see that Paul refers to those who are in Christ 13 times, being within the sphere of the king of the kingdom of God's redemptive activity. And Paul will even switch Jesus Christ to put Christ at the beginning and say Christ Jesus 15 times. King Jesus. And you have to do this when you're writing to believers in Rome who formerly worshipped the Roman emperor. You have to indicate that Jesus is the true king, that Jesus is the true son of God, that Jesus is the true savior, and as we're going to see, Jesus is the true Lord. Because Caesar was actively promoted as son of God, savior, and Lord. So these anti-imperial, subversive, Christological claims that are made of Jesus would not have been ignored by the original recipients of Paul's letter to the Romans. In regard to Kyrios, the Greek noun for Lord, Jesus is referred to with this title 30 times, around 30 times. There's a couple that are debated, but we'll just say 30. Specifically, he is described as our Lord 11 times. And remember that in the Old Testament, you can't say our Yahweh. Our Yahweh is not an actual Hebrew phrase because Lord is a title here. It's not a reference to the divine name. Jesus is our Lord. Why does Paul have to emphasize 11 times that Jesus is our Lord? Because they thought that Caesar was their Lord prior to converting 
to being Christ followers. Caesar is not their Lord. Christ is our Lord. And Paul describes the ministry, and again, being this identification of being in the sphere of the Lord eight times within Romans, using the phrase in the Lord, in curio in Greek. Now, to be fair, and this needs to be stated, there are a number of places where Paul cites a Yahweh passage from the Hebrew Bible, and in doing so, he uses the Greek noun kyrios, as it would say in the Septuagint. And without question, these references refer to God as the Father. So you can't just look at all the references to Lord in Romans and assume that they all refer to Jesus, because there are many of them that refer to God, without question. They aren't even debated. So it's best to take each reference on its own merits, rather than to make these overarching broad statements. We have to look at the details. Now Paul's gospel, which was preached to Gentiles who knew nothing of Jewish messianism, spelled out the person of Christ. And we can see this in the opening four verses of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 1 is where I will start. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. We can get a lot out of these opening verses. We first note, that Jesus is God's son, concerning his son, in verse 3, who was born as a descendant of David. Okay, so he is already the son of God at his birth. His birth is described as being a descendant of David, meaning he is a lineal human descendant from this promised line of kings. David lived in 1000 BC, and Jesus comes from a line of David. That means that Jesus came after David, and Jesus didn't pre-exist David. And Jesus declared Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Now, some people think that, oh, Paul only thinks that Jesus is Son of God at his resurrection. But that's clearly not the case. Paul says that Jesus is God's Son in verse 3 at the moment of his birth. Now, he is Son of God with power at the resurrection of the dead because Paul believes that God raised Jesus and exalted him highly. So there is a empowered sense that Jesus is the Son of God at his resurrection. But he is still clearly God's Son at his birth. And he is our Lord. Not Caesar being their Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And it's interesting that all of those points about Jesus being the Son of God being the descendant of David, being one who died, being one who was raised from the dead, being someone who is now risen to the status of lordship. These are parts of Paul's gospel, the things that Gentiles who knew nothing of Jewish messianism, they had to believe these points in order to become converted, in order to become part of the Christian community. The correct understanding of Jesus was part of Paul's saving gospel message. It mattered to Paul, 
if I could say it bluntly, what you believed about Jesus. And for those who knew nothing of Jewish expectation, these are the things that Paul set out for them to believe. Now, Paul compares and contrasts Jesus and Adam, the primordial human being from the opening chapters of Genesis, in some interesting ways. In Romans 5.14, Paul says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Romans 5.14. So Adam is a type of the one who was to come. So Adam was the type. Jesus is the anti-type, meaning that Jesus came after Adam. This is not the kind of thing that Paul would say if Paul believed that Jesus pre-existed Adam. That would make Jesus the type of Adam, not Adam the type of Christ. Jesus was the one to come. Adam was the type. Next verse, verse 15, says, But the free gift is not like the transgressions. For if the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. That's Romans 5.15, where Jesus is called the one man, the one human being. Here, the transgression of Adam is dealt with by a human being. Paul did not believe that Jesus had to be God in order to deal with Adam's transgression. In fact, Paul believed that Jesus had to be human in order to deal with Adam's transgression. And at the end of this section in verse 19, it says, For as though one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That's Romans 5.19, which indicates that Jesus was obedient, implying that Jesus was obedient to God. This indicates that Jesus was subordinate to God and was obedient in a way that Adam was not. So we can see a lot about Paul's understanding of Jesus as a human being in relation to Adam. So what does it mean that God sent his son in the likeness of flesh? This is spelled out in Romans 8 verse 3 where Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, some people have read this passage and suggested that this is referring to incarnation, that God sent his son in the likeness of flesh, meaning that the son became human. And there are a couple of things we can point out clearly in this passage. There's a distinction between God and his son. Okay, This is not God the son being sent by God. This is the son being commissioned by God. So there's a distinction. Jesus is not called God here. Jesus is clearly distinguished from God. And the likeness of flesh is not some sort of incarnational thing to where the Son of God becomes human. It's not regular flesh. It is sinful flesh. He takes upon the sinful flesh of all humanity as an offering for sin. This is looking towards the death of Jesus as someone who, as the representative human being, represents the sin of Adam, 
and sin is condemned in Jesus' flesh. So it's not the Son of God taking on flesh. It is his Son coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, taking on the sinful flesh of all humanity in an atonement sense. And this is in the sense of an offering for sin. So while some people would read into Romans 8.3 the sense of an incarnation of the Son of God, this is clearly not Trinitarian theology. This is sinful flesh that he is taking, not human flesh onto a divine being. Now, the manner in which Jesus was exalted after his resurrection is clearly described by Paul. And it seems that Paul has been duly influenced by Psalm 110, verse 1, where Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But look at what Paul says in Romans 8, 34. Quote, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. That's Romans 8, 34, where Paul says that Jesus clearly died, he was raised, and now he is at God's right hand. That is a sense of exaltation. It's not that he was raised and he's still on earth. He was raised and exalted to the place of God's right hand. So Jesus is distinguished from God. He is exalted to God's right hand, which indicates a second place position. He's not co-equal with God. You wouldn't be at God's right hand if you're an equal with God. But that gives a strong sense of how Paul understood Jesus' exaltation after his resurrection. And it seems very clear that he is influenced, Paul is influenced by Psalm 110 verse 1. Now we need to think about the manner in which Jesus was exalted as we look at our next point, this is actually a sub-point in regard to Jesus, in regard to the Yahweh text that is quoted of Jesus in Romans 10.13. So I'm going to read this passage in Romans 10, but I'm going to get four verses worth of context. I'm going to start in verse 9, which says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. And it's that last phrase, which cites from Joel 2, which says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Joel 2, this is Yahweh. Whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And Paul seems to cite this Yahweh passage in regard to Jesus because in verse 9, it says that we need to confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. Does this mean that we need to confess Jesus as Yahweh in order to be saved? Well, let's make a couple of points. First of all, in verse 9, there is a clear distinction between the resurrected Jesus and the God who raised him. There is a God who raised Jesus from the dead. 
implying that the manner in which Jesus is Lord is based on his resurrection and exaltation. So you got Jesus as the Lord, and you got someone who raised him from the dead, and that one who raised him from the dead is God. It would seem strange to say that you need to confess Jesus as Yahweh and believe that Yahweh raised him from the dead. That seems to be wildly inconsistent. So we need to take seriously the fact that Paul distinguishes Jesus from God in the opening verse, in verse 9. Now we can also look forward to a clear statement that Paul makes in Philippians 2, 9-11, that God has exalted Jesus and God has given Jesus the name which is above every name. And so God has shared his name not just with any part of Jesus, but with the resurrected and exalted Jesus. So it seems to go to show that if God has shared his name with Jesus, then Paul is comfortable with God using Yahweh text in regard to Jesus, specifically Jesus as a resurrected and exalted person. And this seems to be what we have in Romans 10, because Romans 10 is also dealing with the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. They're both in resurrection context. God has and can share his name with special agents. In Exodus 23:21, God says that he has put his name into an angel. My name is in him. Exodus 23:21. And in regard to the Messianic king, Micah chapter 5 and verse 4 says that this Messianic king that's going to come from Bethlehem will have the name of Yahweh. He will be within the strength and the majesty of Yahweh's name. God can share his name with special agents. God can share his name with the Messianic king and Paul already tells us that he believes that God has given his name to the resurrected Jesus in Philippians 2. And so what we see here is that there's a Yahweh text that is used of Jesus. What is the best way to explain that? Well, the best way seems to be with taking seriously what Paul has already said, that God has shared this name with Jesus. Not that Jesus is Yahweh, but that God has exalted Jesus and God has shared his name and his majesty, his roles and his responsibilities with this crucified and risen human being. I think that's the best way of understanding Romans 10 and verse 13. But there's some room for dialogue and discussion. But I think the best way of dealing with it is to take seriously what Paul says in Romans 2, 9-11. But by having God share his name with Jesus, this is not to blur the distinction between Jesus and God. We also need to point out clearly that confessing Jesus as Lord is a counter-Caesar claim. If you're saying in the letter to the Romans that you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. You are saying that Caesar is no longer Lord. And by saying that Jesus is Lord, we are also making sure to point out that Jesus did die. He was mortal. He was deceased. And that God raised Jesus from the dead. Moving on here, we can look at 
chapter 15, verse 8, where it says that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. It's interesting here. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God. And this sounds very similar to the earlier part of the Philippian passage, Philippians 2, 5-11, where Jesus became a servant. Christ Jesus became a servant. This is not an incarnational sense. This is just the human mission of Jesus, as we see in the four biblical Gospels. So Paul has a lot to say about Jesus and Romans, but how does Paul understand the relationship between the one God, the Father, and the risen Jesus? This moves us to our third point. Point number three is God and Jesus working together in Romans. A lot of passages we can look at to get a sense as to how Paul understood this relationship. Both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ send greetings. You can see this in Romans 1.7, where it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the Holy Spirit is not giving greetings, and it's not grace and peace from God our Father and from God the Son. It is from God, who is defined as the Father, and from someone distinguished from God, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of Romans indicates a distinction between God and Jesus, but also shows how the two work together. The end talks about, according to Romans 16, verse 27, quote, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. And so we have someone described as the only wise God, but the glory is going through Jesus Christ. It goes through Jesus Christ, but to the only wise God. This indicates that the Father is the only wise God, and Jesus is distinguished from the only wise God. Now, since we've spoken about God sharing his name with the risen and exalted Jesus, we can see that God also shares other things with Jesus in Romans. Specifically, God has shared the role of judge and judging with Jesus. But the manner of this relationship works in regard to God judging through Christ Jesus. Consider Romans 2.16, which says that God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. God is the ultimate judge, but he operates this judgment through Christ Jesus. And Romans 2.16 says that this will happen on that day. Reconciliation comes from God, but through Jesus. Romans 5.11 says, We also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. That's Romans 5.11. So reconciliation comes from God, but through Jesus. Ethically, Christians are to die to sin and live a renewed life to God, but through Jesus Christ. In Romans 6.11, Paul says, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thanks and thanksgiving are offered to God, but 
Guess what? Through Jesus Christ. Romans 7.25 says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the common way that Paul describes the experience of Christians is that they experience God through the mediation of the risen and exalted Jesus. Now Paul continues to distinguish God and Jesus in manners pertaining to who raised whom from the dead. And this is clear and consistent throughout Romans, as it has been in all of Paul's letters. Romans 1.4 declares Jesus as Son of God by power by the resurrection of the dead. God raised the Son of God from the dead. It's Romans 1.4. God is described as him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead in Romans 4.24. And in chapter 8 and verse 11, it says, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. God raised Jesus from the dead. In chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who was at the right hand of God. Jesus died, Jesus was raised. By whom? By God. And of course, the confession in chapter 10 and verse 9 says that we confess that God raised Jesus from the dead. This distinction is clear and consistent in Romans. So, in conclusion, we have observed that Romans is a theologically dense letter containing much of the fruits of Paul's theology and interpretive convictions. It is clear, based on the carefully structured arguments in Romans, that Paul is a deep thinker. It is also interesting that Paul's understanding of monotheism, Christology, and the relationship between God and the risen Jesus are remarkably similar to his earliest letter, 1 Thessalonians. First, we noted within Romans that the Greek noun for God, theos, appears more frequently than any other letter in the New Testament. There are plenty of opportunities for Paul, if he wished, to declare that the God whom he serves is a plurality of persons, or even triune in nature. But this is not what Paul teaches. For Paul, God is simply the Father alone. God is our Father. He is the Father. And Spirit-filled believers are assumed to call out to God, saying, Abba, Father. In fact, Paul clearly states that God is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul regards God as the sole creator. And Paul describes his creator as a single person with singular pronouns. Of significance is the fact that Paul continues to express the Jewish Shema by saying that the Christian God, namely the God of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, is still one person. Second, we observed in Romans that Jesus is quite frequently referred to in both royal terms, Christ, and anti-imperial terms, our Lord. This would have not been lost on the ears of those living in Rome, which is the seat of imperial authority and power. Paul's expression of the saving gospel message regards Jesus as the Son of God, both before and after the resurrection. 
Furthermore, Paul's gospel portrays Jesus as the son of David, indicating a royal figure that descended from the line of regents spanning back to King David. This indicates that Paul did not believe in the pre-existence of Jesus, since Jesus came after, and obviously from, David. Jesus is also the second Adam, indicating that Jesus came after Adam, and that Jesus is a human being. The resurrected Jesus has been highly exalted to the position of lordship, specifically to God's right hand. It is likely that Paul is expressing God sharing his own name with Jesus by citing a Yahweh passage from Joel 2 in regard to the resurrected Jesus. And this fits with the clear statement in Philippians 2, 9-11. Being one who was raised from the dead, Jesus clearly was mortal and one who truly died. Lastly, we observed in Romans that many aspects of a Christian's experience are involved with God, but through Jesus. In this manner, Jesus functions as the risen and exalted mediator of the Christian's relationship with God. Whether it be judgment on that day, reconciliation, the orientation of the newly baptized life, or the giving of thanks, these are seen by Paul as operating with Jesus as the middle person between God the Father and the believer. Of course, God raised the deceased Jesus from the dead, and God will raise believers from the dead as well. Readers of Romans are greeted by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In sum, Paul's letter to the Romans is biblical Unitarian in its theology, and there is no evidence that Jesus is divine in the same way that the Father is divine. Nor is there any indication that God is more than a single person, the Father alone. Jesus is completely human, being the son of David and the second Adam. Join us next week as we look at Philippians to see how the risen Jesus is portrayed alongside the only true God of Jewish monotheism. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for free, for absolutely nothing, by simply sharing your favorite episodes with your friends, by rating and writing an honest review on iTunes. If you'd like to financially donate to the podcast, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. I want to offer a special thanks to Dustin Williams for his post-production and editing of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Thank you very much. And again, a reminder that those who are interested in viewing the upcoming debate on Jesus' preexistence please look for the link on the Biblical Unitarian Podcast Facebook group. Thank you so much for listening to us in this long episode. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.